What's up, everyone? I'm Corey Siegfried, and this is The Turn. Welcome to a different side of golf. This is our seventh episode of season one, which will include nine episodes with one released every nine days. In these episodes, we'll approach what each individual does both on and off the golf course with a business perspective in mind. This episode's guest, Dr. Bob Rotella, is well known as one of the most renowned golf and sports psychologists who ever live. The golfers he's consulted for have won over 700 professional tour events and 82 majors, by his estimate. He's published 18 books and has another one on the way. One of those books, Golf is Not a Game of Perfect, is the best-selling sports psychology book of all time. Doc and I started working together when I was 14 years old, and then we worked closely when I was at the University of Virginia, as he lives nearby in Keswick, a few miles from the university grounds. Bob Rotella was an incredible athlete before he became Dr. Rotella. He played every sport growing up and eventually basketball and lacrosse at the collegiate level. Doc has also coached just about every sport at every level too. Grade school, high school, college, and professional, both teams and individuals. And his expertise is not limited to sports. He's consulted for leaders at companies such as AT&T, Merrill Lynch, Morgan Stanley, GE, and many more. Though the most impactful experience for Doc was when he taught swimming to special needs students at the Brandon Training School in Vermont. What struck me throughout our whole conversation is that Doc has never treated what he does as work. It's never been a job, and you'll understand why the business side of it has never been a concern or focus of Doc's. He figured out early on that he could make money from helping others, and that was never a motivation before or after that realization. I'll let him tell the rest because there is a lot to unpack from our conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, I'm Corey Siegfried. This is The Turn, and I am here with Dr. Bob Rotella, an old friend of mine. Doc, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Corey. Quick backstory of Doc and I. Met I met you a dream. Wasn't it a dream I was having? <laughs> yeah, probably nothing. Something happened? <laughs> yeah, uh, unfortunately for you, I came into your life when I was 14 or 15, I think. And I know it was before Trevor Immelman won the Masters because when I was at your home, which I, I believe every cl- new client of yours comes down to your house for a, yep. two days, three days. Um, yep, two. Over. Yeah, it gets to know you. You get to know them, really. And I remember we were at your kitchen table. And you go, hang on, I got to take this call for a second. You get up a minute back, you come back and say, oh, that was this young South African player, uh, Trevor Immelman, pretty good guy, could be a stud. And I think three or four years later, he won the Masters. So I know it was before that happened. I remember coming down and you live on Glenmore uh, golf course in uh, right outside of Charlottesville. And we, <laughs> uh, we were just discussing. So I'll never forget. I, I got my first taste of the mental side of the game from you when we were playing uh, our first nine holes together. Uh, I was on the ninth hole. I decided to trash talk you on like the fifth hole or something. And you kind of looked at me sharply and you're like, uh-uh, don't go there. And I'm 15, pretty rambunctious. I'm like, ah, whatever. Like, you know, well, he's not that, you know, he's, he's harmless. He can't do that much to me, right? And on the ninth green, I had like a five-footer for birdie or par or something. And I step up to it. And right, right when I'm stepping into it, you go, you know, Corey, I haven't seen you miss one of these all day. And I thought about it and I promptly missed it. And I don't think I've made many putts since then. So you really got my head afterward. Um, I mean, I don't ever, I don't really ever do that kinds of gamesmanship or mess with people's heads. But you wanted to play that game. I said, well, I know how to play the game if you want to. Yeah, to put me in my place. Yeah. You know, but that's when you made a lot of putts after that. So, 
They've all gone in at some point. I've finished yeah. every round since, I can tell you that. We Since then, we've, uh, so as mentioned, you're right outside of Charlottesville, uh, was at UVA for golf in college, and you were um, assistant coach, more or less, for the program. So you meet with the team quarterly and everything, uh, and we've developed a great relationship. I'd like to go back to really what the whole story of Dr. Bob Rotella is, um, and even before you were a doctor. So born and raised in Vermont, eventually went to UConn for your PhD in sports psychology. But what happened in between then? And what led you to sports psychology? Well, I was fortunate, first of all, by I had a cousin named Sal Soma, who was a legendary football coach at Newdorf High School in Staten Island, New York. And he was really good buddies with Vince Lombardi, the great football coach. And they did clinics together all the time. Um, most people don't know it, but Lombardi was like a high school coach at St. Cecilia's High School in New Jersey for 17 years. So he and my cousin would do clinics together. And every time he would come and visit, I'd be the one person in the family who wanted to hear his stories. And he'd always be talking about this Vince Lombardi guy and attitude. And so that's when I first got interested in attitude. And then I happened to live on the same block as the Catholic high school and the Catholic elementary school and all the practice fields. So I was always, by fifth grade, I was at every football, basketball, baseball practice. And then when I got to high school, I was a point guard in basketball, the quarterback in football, a pitcher in baseball. And as a result, I was usually the captain and I spent a lot of time in coaching offices. And they were always talking about attitude. And they talked a lot about practice players and gamers and who's gonna be able to handle pressure. And so that just added to my interest. And then when I went to college, I had a college basketball, I played basketball and lacrosse in college. And my first year, our college basketball coach, every Friday, second semester of my first semester, my first year, I mean, uh, brought in a busload of children from a, a, a training school in Vermont, Brandon Training School, for special needs kids. And I remember the first time we did it, I said, why are we wasting basketball practice with this? And over time, I really fell in love with it. And I got offered a job teaching swimming at the institution. And I did that for five years and actually taught one full year at that institution and coached basketball at my high school, Mount St. Joseph Academy. And boy, I learned a lot about attitude from special needs kids. They just had the greatest attitudes I've ever seen. In my mind at that time, they had like 99% of the things in life going wrong for them. Um, and they spent all day thinking about the one good thing going on in their life. They were, you know, like in the summer, it was the best thing going on was swimming lessons and open swimming. And that's what they would talk about all day. And it really captured my interest that they would have 99 things going wrong in their life and one good thing. And they could focus on the one good thing and talk about it all day. And that kind of led me to getting offered a, scholarship to the University of Connecticut to graduate school. They liked what I was doing with special needs kids and offered me a scholarship. And I had been playing lacrosse, uh, club lacrosse in Albany, New York. And I got an interview with the lacrosse coach at UConn and got hired to be the defensive coach at 21 years of age. And, um, and then I coached basketball at the University High School, which called E.O. Smith. And I did that all through graduate school. And from there, you know, I continued to learn because 
every time I took a class in performance psychology, I was actually going out and coaching and working with real athletes. And I got very intrigued with it. And then I got offered a job at the University of Virginia. And I actually coached lacrosse my first three years and taught. And at the end of that, they asked me if I'd be interested in starting a doctoral program in sports psychology and working with lots of the teams. And so I left coaching and went into just coaching people's heads. Um, that's probably a pretty quick synopsis. And then back in the early 80s, around 1980, I was um, given a talk on performance psychology in Madison Square Garden, the basketball coaches. And someone from Golf Digest magazine was there. And they really liked it. And they asked me if I would go to Disney. And they were having a meeting with their advisory board, which was Sam Snead, Carrie Middlecoff, Paul Runyon, Bob Toski, Jim Flick, and Davis Love. I gave a talk, and they loved it. And that kind of led me to working with the Digest schools. I just did their VIP schools. And Sam Snead and I, our job was to take the students at the school on how to take it from the driving range of the golf course. And that was a neat experience. And that led to Peter Costas was one of the teachers. And he was teaching Tom Kite and Gary Koch and Roger Maltby. And he asked me to come to Doral and work with those guys for three days. And I did. I, I kind of worked with them in the afternoon. Peter worked with them in the morning. And Kite, they'd all been having trouble winning. And Peter felt like they had good swings. And Tom made about a 40-footer on the last hole to beat Nicholas. Um, and one Doral that led to me working with some other players and everyone kept winning. I went, God, this is cool. Um, <laughs> and I, I went from doing it for free to saying, gee, I probably charge people. You know, we've won, I don't know, probably six, 700 tournaments on tour and we've won like 82 majors and had a lot of fun since then. So it's, it's been a lot of fun. It's, it was very unexpected. Um, I, I can't, when people ask me, you know, like, what was your original goal of working with golfers? And I said, it never crossed my mind. I'd be working with golfers. I played team sports. Um, I did caddy for Bobby Locke who won like four British opens just because he married a girl from my hometown. <laughs> and I was a, I was caddying when I was like 14, 15. And I got the caddy for him a lot in the summer. Um, other than that, I really didn't have much of an attachment to golf. Um, so it was very unexpected. So I still work a lot in team sports and still enjoy it. But I spend way more of my time in golf, that's for sure. Did you play at all growing up, play golf? You know, I probably played three times a year. On Monday mornings between baseball and football season, they'd let the caddies play before noon. And we'd probably take five clubs out there and – but I was never interested in getting, I didn't ever practice. And they, they never had a practice range at the Rutland Country Club. They still don't. Um, so, I mean, it wasn't like anything I was overly into. And in and, and that era, at least where I was growing up, I think it's pretty true everywhere. I mean, if you were an athlete and could play football, basketball, and baseball, that's what you played. It was a lot of the players where I grew up, if you couldn't, if you weren't good at the other team sports, you probably skied or played golf. And, you know, back in those days, there weren't women's teams and there were only three sports and everyone would go to the football game. Everyone would go to the basketball game and you'd get all the publicity in the papers. So that's pretty much what everyone did. In Vermont, there weren't any pro teams. 
So high school sports were like really big. Like even the colleges, you know, it was good sports, but it wasn't like, you know, a pro team or something. It wasn't like ACC basketball or something. That's kind of how it happened in a nutshell. It's totally serendipitous. Yeah. That's funny. I, because <laughs> that knocked out the next few questions I had of like, when did you know, determine that your sports psychology was your calling and why golf and how did that? Well, I, I think I knew, I think, well, it's interesting you asked that. I mean, when I worked at the institution, what I realized is, wow, when you don't have any parents or teachers telling kids what they can't do, I could get them to do pretty much anything I told them they could do. You know, and so they just believe me, like Bob Rotella says I can do it, so I'll do it. So it was very easy to teach them almost anything because they didn't have anybody else influencing their minds. You know, it's just the way it was. And then when I coached basketball, it was very clear to me early on that I could get kids to play at a, at a higher level. And even when I was 21, 22 years old in coaching, I could get kids to believe in me that were a year younger than me. You know, because I was coaching players at UConn that were within a year of my age. And it didn't have any meaning to me. I mean, it's like when kids in my – when I go back and talk in my hometown and they'll say, well, you know, how do you come from Rutland, Vermont, and get to work with the people you get to work with? And I go, well, you know, it doesn't have anything to do with where you're born or where you come from. You know, it's about what you can imagine and what you can dream up. And But, I mean, in many ways, I just was in love with sports by fifth grade. And I really wanted to learn about how to play better and how to get people to play better. and. I've been passionate about it and I still am. And that's kind of led me to helping a lot of people. But what I've always found when, when people ask me, well, was it hard to get people to believe in sports psychology? I go, I've never had a problem getting people to want to learn about it. I think as long as you're helping people, boy, there's people who want to get good. You know, there's people who want to be great in sport and they're always looking for a way. And a lot of athletes have worked out on the weights. I mean, which I certainly did a lot of when I was in college. Um, they practice like crazy. I mean, you, you couldn't work harder than a lot of people. At some point, people go, there must be more to this. And at that point, they're ready to look inside. But to this day, as you'll know from your experience with me, I have never, ever called anybody and told them they ought to come and see me. I've just always kind of let it go by word of mouth. I, you know, I figure if, if I help people, they're going to tell somebody else because athletes are great in that regard. I mean, they want to help each other. And it's the same way with coaches. If, if I help a team, they're probably going to go tell another team. And, and with college teams, it ends up leading them to tell pro teams, you know, about the work I did with them. And, you know, it just turned into a career. And then actually, you know, for about 25 years, I did a lot of training and financial consultants for Merrill Lynch. And some with Morgan Stanley. And that really came out of the, the gentleman named Pat Walsh, who was the head of human resources for Merrill Lynch. He came up with the idea of the Merrill Lynch shootouts. And when he was out on tour, he had guys on tour tell him about what I was doing. And they wanted to help their financial consultants, what they called them at that time, to perform better and be more successful. Would you say you followed your passion? No question about that. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I, I think it's hard to be great at anything if you don't have passion. And, you know, people want to ask me, what is passion? Yeah, it's, it's a hard thing to define, but I'll tell you this. 
you probably have, it takes more discipline to not think about the thing you're passionate about. It doesn't take any discipline to think about it. It's like you wake up thinking about it. It gets you out of bed in the morning. It gets you excited during the day. You go to sleep pretty exhausted. And, and as you grow through life, you know, I would say after about seven or 10 years, it's like you have to actually train yourself to stop thinking about it all the time. <laughs> you know? yeah. So, I mean, it, it's fascinating. And I think people who don't have passion, they're working at their job. And I think people who are passionate, they're playing at it. It's, it's funny, down in the basement, seeing as you play at Virginia, when I coached lacrosse, I still have a picture they did in the paper. And it was with the goalie and some of the defensive guys on the team. And they were talking about how, what an unbelievable change in their defense since I got there and how much energy I had and how passionate and excited I was about defense. And I mean, I don't think I thought about that when I was doing it, but you know, I mean, I probably any kids that I coach probably felt that way. They probably thought I was crazy. some degree <laughs> about how much I was in love with it. You know, I remember when I coached in high school and I told the kids, yeah, well, we're building a program here. We're going to play defense. And yeah, I know you're not used to practicing in the summer. We're going to practice in the summer. And I remember telling the parents that, um, yeah, I know you probably all like to go on a ski trip at Thanksgiving break, but if you're going to play on this team, um, we're going to be practicing at Thanksgiving. So if you're not going to be around at Thanksgiving, you might as well quit right now. Um, now you can stay at my house. You can sleep on my floor or on a couch, but uh, we got to build this program and we're not, you know, and I remember a great Bill Bradley. Bill Bradley was a, uh, the greatest basketball player in the country played for Princeton, which is hard for people to believe now, but people would show up two hours before the game just to watch his pregame warmup. And he was a Rhodes scholar before he played for the Knicks and won the world championship. Bill Bradley, they wrote two books about him while he was in college. He had a great line in his book and it said, if I'm the best basketball player in the country and you're not, how do you expect to get better than me? If every day I'm practicing more than you are. And I always thought that was just a great line. <laughs> and I remember telling line. those kids that, and they looked at me like, ooh, this guy's different. And I didn't look at it like being different. I just looked at it. I went to a Catholic high school, and, man, that's how we did things. That's how my cousin Sal did things. And it's like, that's how we're going to be doing things. I mean, I just took what I had heard and knew about success at that point in time and said, well, if we don't win, it's not going to be because we didn't make a commitment. You know, and that was Lombardi's big thing, you know, with his famous line, winning isn't everything, it's the only thing. Uh, what Lombardi really meant by it was making the commitment to winning was everything. He wasn't talking about the score of the game or the outcome of the game. He was talking about getting a bunch of people to make a total commitment to being successful. It's interesting that you have that background of Vince Lombardi. I didn't know that. And obviously they played a lot into your approach mentally. So it just, this all sound just inherent to you. Like when you talk to people like me um, that are borderline head cases at some point when they come to you, is it almost so, because when you talk to you, it's so natural, right? And I know we're getting off of the business side of things, but when, when you talk to you, it's so natural. And it, again, it's, it's stuff that you can hear from anybody, but it's so convincing because you're like, yeah, well, this is how it is. Is it just, well, I've studied the psychology of greatness you know, now for 45 years or more. And yeah, there's just some consistent things that you learn that are really important. And, you know, when you're coaching, you know, you hammer, when you decide what's important, 
you hammer the same things over and over again. And as you get to know somebody, when I'm working with them, you get to know what their tendencies are. You also learn, you know, like you, you already did a lot of things really well. I mean, you were already a good golfer before I met you. And it's like, okay, he already does these things really good. There's these two to four things he's got to get a lot better at doing. And I'm going to kind of wear you out and hammer you on those things. And in sport, you know, the line we use all the time is a lot of, there's constantly gut check time. And gut check time in sport is it's time to look inside and take a look at yourself and say, okay, now I know what I need to do. Am I really doing it every time I stand over a golf shot? Or am I getting in that, you know, whatever you're doing in life, it's like, am I doing it every day in whatever job I'm doing now? You know, it's kind of like I'm sitting here talking to you about this stuff and I'm kind of juiced and Jack getting into it with Corey tonight because this is what I'm doing right now, you know, and it might have an impact on somebody's life. I, I love the, uh, I put it in my last book, um, How Champions Think. Michael Jordan had a great line. He said, they asked him, why does he go all out every night for 40 minutes? And he said, I remember being a kid and I got to go to one NBA game a year. And every night when I play, I remind myself that that might be that kid's only chance to see me play. And he didn't want to see me on a night when I'm just going through the motions. And I thought it was a great way of looking at it. You know, and it's like, I look at it like, well, what you're doing with this might have an impact on some kid might listen to this podcast and it might have some impact and help him achieve his dreams. So let's go into that. So you went over how at least you got to the point where you started to bring on some clients and success bred more success and more word of mouth. So there are two questions that I want to go down these different paths, but it's about writing the books, which you've mentioned you're still doing, and then also how the brand of Bob Rotella came to be and how it's evolved. So let's, what came first? Was it really you became known as Doc Rotella and then people, you wrote books or were there, it was a chicken for the egg thing, you know what I mean? No, I, I, I worked with a lot of golfers. I think it was about 12 to 15 years because I wanted to know what things I could write about that were consistent across all players. In other words, there's some always some individual differences. But if I was going to write a book to share with the general public what I was doing with great players, I wanted to make sure, first of all, you don't want to put anything in a book that might hurt somebody. And then you want to write about things that you know would help anybody if they did. And so that's, I mean, the books are just a way of sharing information with people who either can't afford or aren't going to take the time, you know, to come and spend two days with me, but I still are looking for ways to get better at this game that we all love, you know? So, I mean, that's, and I mean, it's interesting. I was telling someone the other day interview, uh, they asked me if I was in love with sports psychology and I laughed and I said, no, I'm not in love with sports psychology. I'm in love with sport and sport performance, and I'm in love with helping athletes and coaches with their dreams. And that's what excites me. It just happened that the mind, as I studied coaching, played a really important role in sport performance, and a lot of coaches weren't that interested in it. And even though they would talk about it, but they didn't really know how to deal with it. 
And so it was like kept like a secret. And they'd say, well, that kid doesn't have it and that kid has it. And, you know, that works pretty nicely if you're the kid the coach thinks has it. But if you're the kid who wants it and the coach doesn't believe you, it's not so good. And so I, I really just decided that I was going to go do that. And to this day, I was explaining to this guy, I said, you know, I'm really in love with making stars. I'm not that into hanging around stars, but I get a real kick out of making people into stars because that's what they're dreaming about. But I, you know, once they get there, they're like, I'm happy as heck for them. But I, I'm not a fan groupie or anything like that, but I, I but I love the challenge. And I, and I would say I get way more of a kick. I mean, I can go back to my first major winner, which was a guy named Wayne Grady from Australia. Mm -hmm. And it was really cool because he had a special needs daughter um, that had Down syndrome. And it was cool given my background. But, uh, you know, that was it was at Shoal Creek. And it was it was wonderful because. I get more of a kick out of helping people that most other people didn't think they could win majors, you know, right up to someone like Padraig Harrington. I mean, you think about it. No one in Ireland had won for almost 70 years, the British open. And then he goes and wins it twice in three majors. And in the next eight years or so, I think, and, and I spent a little time with all of the other guys from my Graham McDowell, Darren Clark and Roy McElroy. And I mean, they won something like eight majors from Ireland. And I, to this day, I say it was kind of like Roger Bannister. Podrick wasn't a child star. He never made the Irish national teams. And no, everyone was glad when he went to college because they said, there's no way he's ever going to play on tour. So when Podrick won, everyone else in Ireland thought they could win a major if Podrick Harrington could win. I think if Rory had been the first guy from Ireland to win, I don't know if it would have impacted other people as much because Rory was a prodigy. I mean, he was kind of like Tiger. And when you get people to start believing, it's amazing what they can do. And too many people want to evaluate their, their past, even though they've been filled with doubt or fear when they've been playing. And I'm like, well, that doesn't tell you anything about your ability or your potential. If you played with doubt or fear or worry or just a little indecision, it's, like you, get, you only want to measure your potential or your talent with how do, you, how do you play when you're totally free of fear and you have a clear and committed mind. You know, the more you can get people to understand that as to why some people are fearless, you know, at seven and somebody else is still scared at 20 is another question. But the point is that human beings, you can get past it. And so so much of what you learn is that the greatest thing about being human is that we have a free will. And what that means, I mean, and believe me, if I can't get somebody to agree that that's the greatest thing you got going for as a human being, because what that means is you believe that you own your mind. You're not a victim. You have the ability to dream up anything you want to dream up for your life. You can come up with any idea you want to come up with for your life. Um, and then you can decide to believe in it or dump it and say, ah, nah, I couldn't do that. Nah, that couldn't happen to me. Oh, I'm not that lucky. You know, I don't have stuff like that happen to me, which is what a lot of people do. Um, so, I mean, that's, what's beautiful about having a free will. 
and you get to think any way you want to think about yourself. So you can either love your talent or hate your talent. You can love your ideas or be afraid that they won't happen. And then I want people to hold themselves personally responsible for how you think about yourself and how you work at it. And I want you to hold yourself accountable. If I can get people to really honestly address that, then it's pretty easy to teach people how to think. But it has to begin with with acceptance that you have a free will. So like when sometimes golfers will say to me or business people will say to me, well, you know, I know you want me to be in a great state of mind in a great mood every minute I'm on the golf course or every minute I'm at work. But boy, that's really hard to do. And I always go, I usually go shake their hand and go, yep, we agree on that. <laughs> but you didn't want to be average. You didn't want to be normal. You were trying to separate yourself from everybody else who plays your game or does your job or whatever. So if you want to do fantastic stuff, you got to do stuff that's hard. Like with the golfer, I'd say, well, it was hard to learn how to hit a bunker shot. But you went in a bunker and spent hours until you learned how to hit bunker shots. Most people don't do that. Most people think a bunker shot is the hardest shot in golf, and you probably think it's the easiest shot in golf. And But, but you had to learn it. It took a lot of work to learn it. And so I look at people and say, well, it's hard to have the attitude we're talking about, but if you want to be great at it, you're going to have to learn to do it. And you really can't care if it's hard. So let's flip that on his head. Were there moments where you had not doubt or fear, but that feeling when you were building your business as a psych, uh, as a sports psychologist in itself, were there, I mean, were there any roadblocks or things that made you rethink your path? No, the only thing I can remember is, um, I, had, I got my first master's degree in special education, and I took an elective in sports psych. It was like my last course. It was an elective. And I came home, and I told my wife I was going to switch majors and change to sports psychology. And she looked at me and said, how are you going to make a living doing that? I said, I don't know, but I'm going to. And it was like, I inside, I, I, I kind of knew I could have an impact on people's heads and their careers and I knew I could coach people to play better but I really didn't know how I, I didn't worry about how I was going to do it I didn't think about it a whole lot because really you know the way I did it is I was going to coach and I was going to teach at the University of Virginia on the side I just was working with athletes you know and it kind of turned into a consulting business Probably the first work I ever did was with skiers at the Stratton Mountain Ski Academy in Stratton Mountain, Vermont. I remember going there, and, and I wasn't a great skier or anything, but I could ski. But, I mean, nothing like those kids. But they had 120 kids from New York and Connecticut who lived at this ski resort, and, man, they all want to be Olympians. And somebody started an academy, and it was fun because they had 125 kids who really were driven and we're motivated. And it was, a, it was a guy who grew up near me who was an all, I mean, it's an interesting story. He was an all American in soccer and skiing at the university of Vermont. And he was like four ten. And so he brought me in and uh, man, we had a ball. And then for about 10 years at the university of Virginia, you, you don't know this, but I ran a tennis program for kids for free. And we worked out from 6.30 to 8.30, quarter to nine, seven days a week. And never charged anybody. 
And what happened is some kids read an article in Charlottesville, read a story about me working with the Stratton Mountain Academy. And they came to my office and said, is there any way you'd start a tennis program? Because I was playing tennis at the time. And so I did. And they all ended up playing college tennis. And I was, I played tennis for 10 years when I was at the University of Virginia. I started working with golfers. I wasn't even playing golf. I was playing tennis, <laughs> which is interesting. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like golf just kind of. But I've, I've worked with some great tennis players, you know, people like Jim Currier and stuff. So, I mean, you know, I, I did a lot in that sport, too. You mentioned being a consultant versus a psychologist or, you know, a, a head doctor. Like I, I read in an article, you said, someone asked, oh, do you think there's a stigma on your profession? And you're like, well, I'm not clinical. I'm more of helping people be excellent and taking the ordinary, making it be great. Yeah. And I'd say the, the difference to me, and I, I'm not saying this is a universal way of looking at it, but the way I look at it is clinical psychologist, psychiatrist, they're trained to treat people who are abnormally at the low end of mental health and trying to get them to normal functioning. I'm working with people who are already normal or above normal functioning in their sport or endeavor and trying to get them to awesome or great. And it's a very different body of knowledge. I still don't understand why we go to college and they have us take abnormal psychology. Why aren't they teaching everybody a class on what I would call performance psychology or success psychology or positive psychology? I mean, I don't know why we don't start teaching kids the psychology of success in middle school. I mean, I, I didn't have any, inter I mean, I remember thinking it was somewhat interesting when they talked about abnormality, um, but it wasn't anything I had any interest in. Well, it seems to have a huge impact on you, the, the success psychology from an early age with Lombardi kind of yep. an influence in your life, right? And look how it's benefited, at least you being able to spread that knowledge and it being inherent. Yeah, I was lucky at a young age. We had, I went to a Catholic high school and we had great coaches. And they were demanding, they were disciplined. They were always talking about winning and success and being champions. And they were very honest about what you had to do in terms of effort and your attitude. And I mean, they really bred it in us. And, and so I was lucky in a lot of ways. And then I happened to play the right positions. It's funny, Corey, I had a player in the Corn Ferry here, tour here a couple of weeks ago. And he was telling me he was struggling in the bunker. So I put him in the bunker and then I went outside the bunker and I stood there and I said, okay, I'm going to stand here and I want you to hit bunker shots. Wherever I put my hand, I want you to hit the bunker shot to my hand. And he looked at me like with this look, like, no way, I might hit you. And I said, you're not going to hit me. He said, well, I might. And I said, well, look, I'm a really good athlete. I can catch. <laughs> I know I'm going to catch it. I guess the question is, are you going to trust that you're going to hit it in my hand? I said, you just take care of you trust that it's going to go in my hand. And I'll take care of catching it. So I had met this kid before, but I hadn't done this with him. And so the first few were pretty good. And I had a reach to catch him a little bit. And he looked at me to my surprise. He said, oh, I didn't know you were a good athlete. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. I mean, I had, you know, I had scored 37 points in a college basketball game. I had scored, I played in the North-South All-Star game in lacrosse. 
I mean, I had scored seven goals in a game. I mean, I had won city championships in tennis and golf, but I, I don't ever talk about that. And this kid was like, oh, oh, God, it's a lot easier to believe you now that I know you're athletic. And I was like, Boy, that's interesting because I don't – it's nothing I ever talk about, you know. But, I mean, it was interesting. That was his perception. That that's had some interesting. So he himself. I had never thought about before. Yeah, so he doubted himself a bit because he didn't know your background. I guess so. That's intriguing. Yeah, that's what I thought, too. Yeah. Have you dug into that since or no? Not really. Yeah. Just thought it was interesting. Anyways, uh, we know one thing for sure. The mind is pretty fascinating. And But the good news is there's a very fine line between being in a great state of mind and being in a very down state of mind. I mean, it's a very, very fine line. I mean, it's just when people say, well, I kind of trusted it. Well, then you didn't. Or they'll say, I had just a little doubt. I go, yep, that's not it. You know, it's like a lot of people really, amateur golfers have trouble understanding how clear a tour player is when they're clear. I mean, there's nothing that exists but where the ball's going. I mean, I remember Padraig Harrington, we were doing a talk once, and he said, you know, let me make this really simple. My number one goal is to get my last thought in the right place. If I get my last thought totally and solely into where I want the ball to go, I'm in good shape. And, I mean, that would be a ridiculous oversimplification, but it would be a really good one. You know, would I rather have a clear mind walking down the fairway or would I rather have a clear mind when it's time to move my body and swing? I say, well, I'd rather have both, but if I had a pick, let's have a clear mind when it's time to move. That's when it's really important. So I'm one of the areas I'm really curious about is, I mean, people have turned to you throughout their careers. Who did you turn to throughout your career? Who have you turned to in those moments you know, turn, Hey, you know, I want to think this through and I need some guidance. You know, I would probably say if I had those moments, it'd probably be my wife younger. It was probably my dad. I, you know, my generation, I don't think you talked about it that much with other people. You know, I can still remember I went eight or nine and oh in little league as a pitcher. And we got to the local little league world series and all of a sudden, it went from a seven-inning game to a nine-inning game. And I shut the team out for seven innings. And then I got bombed in the eighth and ninth inning. And I had my first loss as a pitcher. Oh, I remember crying my eyes out. There's sport. There's love. There's the birth of a child and the death of a loved one. Those are probably the things in life that cause us the strongest emotions. It's amazing that sport's one of those four. You know, when you think about it, I mean, so, I mean, sport really gets at us mentally and emotionally. It breaks your heart. I mean, I mean, all of my golfers have had their heart broken and you have to be able to deal with it. I think I always tell people, if you have a healthy philosophy of competition, and I think this is where my dad probably helped a lot. Um, my dad was a barber. His dad got killed when he was nine and went to work when he was nine years old. My dad didn't care about sports at all, at least to my face. I found out later he thought it was pretty cool. When I was in school, all he cared about was academics. He thought education was the key to opportunity in life. And 
He went to work at nine. He didn't get the education opportunity he wanted. He's a very well-read man. I've told many people, I think he's probably the most well-read man I've ever known. It was like when he found out I love sport, it was like, okay, if you're going to play sport, you're getting these grades in school, these grades in behavior and attendance, or you won't be playing. And he had this great line. He said that the school has its eligibility rules and I have my eligibility rules and they don't have anything in common with one another. The schools is a minimal standard and mine is you're getting A's, you know, and, and the toughest classes. And as a result, he has three kids with PhDs and, you know, I mean, he just, that's what he cared about. And later in life, I found out that he enjoyed sport and liked it, but he was a barber. So our basketball games were on Tuesday and Fridays. So he was working at night. So he didn't get to many games. I think he went to my last football game. Uh, which was against a crosstown rivalry. But other than that, he had to work on Saturdays. If he wasn't working, he wasn't making any money. <laughs> and we had five kids. So, I mean, it was it was different, you know? I mean, today, parents are much more involved. I mean, parents are traveling around the country with their kids and spending a ton of money with their kids. And it's the, the emphasis is very different. You know, the other interesting thing about my dad is he he made sure we all played a musical instrument because he thought it was a form of discipline. He didn't care if we became great musicians, but he knew it was taking a lot of discipline to learn how to play an instrument. And I, I heard recently where every kid in China has to learn to play the piano or the violin. Um, so they're, they, they're pretty smart. Yeah. You know, just an aside on that, when, when Davis Love's dad was going to quit playing pro golf and become a teaching pro, he called his old teacher, Harvey Pennick and asked him for advice. And Harvey said to him, um, have you ever played the piano? And Mr. Love said, no. He said, good, start taking piano lessons. And he said, well, no, I want to know how to teach golf. He said, yeah, start taking piano lessons, and you'll be able to understand what it's like for a beginner golfer who's trying to take learn how to play golf. <laughs> That's a good comparison, yeah. Yeah, it's, mm -hmm. it's going to take a while. I played clarinet, and the first time I had to do a recital for all the parents and aunts and uncles, you know, I was going to play a song called Blue Heaven. And I mean, it's like, okay, you better put on autopilot and let it happen. But if you got up there and started worrying about squeaking or hitting the wrong note, you were dead. And it's very <laughs> similar to golf in that regard. So how was, from your first book to the new one coming out, how has Bob Rotella or Dr. Rotella evolved? Well, I would say the first book was written for everybody who plays the game of golf, no matter what level. I would say several of the, well, at least the last several books are more for people who really want to see how great they can get. For people, you know, want to get down to scratch. People who, people who really want to make a commitment physically and mentally and emotionally to it. Um, I'd say that'd be the biggest difference, I'd say. You know, I wrote a book on business for my years with Merrill Lynch. Life is not a game of perfect. How champions think was more for a variety of, you know, life and, and sport and golf. Um, but most of them have been about, you know, if you look at the 15th club or the golfer's mind, um, you know, those are, those are for people who, who play tournament golf or competitive golf, or, which reduces the audience to some degree. Good news is athletes in a lot of different sports really like them. I mean, it's, it's not like, I mean, most people in other sports say, you know, I can read your books. And like, if I'm a equestrian show jumper, 
I can read the book and I'm just thinking about show jumping or some tennis players say, you know, I'm reading your books. I'm just thinking about tennis. I, you know, I, I know it's about golf, but I, I'm thinking about my tennis game when I'm reading it. So, and the same for people in work. Has there ever been a moment with one of your players or anybody where you were taken aback by what you learned yourself? And what was it? You know, it's funny. The only one that really took me back is one guy, probably 20 years ago, who I had to look him in the face and say, you want to fail more than I want you to win. You want to be miserable more than I want you to be happy and have a ball. And I looked at him and I said, I wish I had met you when I was 22 years old and you were my only client because then I probably would have had enough time and energy to just get you to do what I want you to do. But I said, right now you'd be a full-time job and I just don't have time. And it, it, and it hits me because it was sad. You know, it really, it was just amazing. This guy just really wanted to be miserable and he's going to find, he found ways to be miserable. He was absolutely convinced that he could have been really good in two other sports, and he picked the only sport that God wasn't going to let him succeed at and that he just couldn't get a break. <laughs> at some point, you just go, wow. So, I mean, it's not like you can change everybody or fix everybody if you want to use that word. You know, I say to some degree, the person who's working with me has to be a true believer. In other words, they have to be willing to believe in themselves. You know, and it takes a lot of honesty. You know, I'm looking inside yourself and say, you know, what, what do I really want? So if someone tells me what the dream is, I'm just going to tell them, well, everything I know, here's what you're going to need to do, you know, to find out if you can reach that dream. And it never stops. You know, I was talking to Tom Kite today, and he said one of the greatest things I've ever heard. He said, you know, Doc, this was 25 years ago. With what I've learned, with my mind and my skills and my talent, there's no way I can shoot over par more than once in a blue moon. If you ever see me shoot over par more than one day in a blue moon, call me because I'm trying to call you because my head's got to be up my butt. And I looked at him, I said, boy, that takes a lot of guts to admit that to yourself, let alone to me. But man, when you can get someone to really look at it that way and be that honest about it, you know, you know, they got a chance of doing some pretty incredible stuff. But a lot of people are, you know, looking for an excuse. He was looking for reasons to be successful. And if you think about it, he grew up with Ben Crenshaw the same, at his club, and Crenshaw was two years younger than him and beat him every time they played. You know, Crenshaw was Tiger Woods as a kid. He won everything. And he's at your club <laughs> and beating you. You know, at that time in life, when you're 12, or 14, you don't know he's going to be Ben Crenshaw. You just know this kid at my club two years younger than me is kicking my butt. And, and to this day, Tom will say, in retrospect, it probably really had a huge positive influence on my life because he pushed me. Yeah. yeah. Look for an excuse of why you're going to lose. That that makes me think of, of a, a, a parallel with the Corn Ferry Tour player that was hitting the bunker shots and his expectation of you that he didn't know the background, but People mentioned tiger, the Tiger effect when, like, the mid-2000s, anytime he was on the leaderboard creeping behind, you knew he was going to win, and all the other guys thought he was going to win, and they were all scared. 
it's because they knew what he could do, but no one, everyone was more worried about that versus worried about themselves or not even worried, but concerned with how they were going to do and committing to it. So what, what's the new book you have coming out? I don't know what it's going to be called, but I think it's going to be called Next Shot, Best Shot or something like that. Uh, but it's all, it's all on, it's about golf and greatness. And I'm going to use a lot of golf analogies, but I'm also going to use a lot of analogies from other sports because today golfers are wanting to be viewed as athletes. So I'm using some examples from other sports to make some of my points because I, I want golfers to be athletes. I think it's, I mean, you see the guys now, Dustin Johnson's a great example. He is strong, flexible, big, everyone's hitting it far. And that's, just the athletic side of it. It's really come, come into play a lot more recently, which is really fun. Well, I, I mean, that's what making a lot of money in golf will do. I mean, people <laughs> yeah. are playing golf because they found out, oh, wait a minute, you can make a lot of money in golf and you can play forever and you get to pick your coaches and you get to decide if you're going to be a pro. You don't have to hope someone drafts you. Uh, hmm, this sounds good. I don't have to rely on teammate. I mean – there's a lot of good reasons. I mean, you look at what Dustin made in the last month and compare it to a lot of other sports. It's pretty good. Yeah, look at Phil, what he just did on the senior tour. It's pretty cool. It could be he huge... pretty smart. He picked a course that was so wide open, it was unbelievable. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but boy, yeah. you gave him a little room and a wedge in his hand on every hole. You found out what he could do. It's pretty fascinating, which, which again, tells you a little something about all of a sudden they're going to that tournament thinking about winning. Someone tells me everything you say makes common logical sense, and I can understand. I said, good. It should. If it doesn't make logical sense, it's probably wrong, <laughs> from my experience. And if you can't understand it, well, then I'm not a very good teacher or coach. You know? But, I mean, the way, you know, it's interesting. We just said the way I look at it is I'm very fortunate and appreciative of getting to work with people like you. I mean, I mean – that's kind of how I look at it. I mean, I still have a lot of appreciation for all the people that have come and spent time with me and, you know, trusted me enough to say, okay, tell me what to do. Have big ideas and have big dreams and don't let anybody take them away from you. And don't care if anybody else likes you, likes your ideas or dreams or disagrees with them or thinks you can or think. I mean, it's really up to whatever you believe. Sometimes logical sense can be profound, and the way Doc delivers it makes it sound so sensible and achievable, it's no wonder that those he's helped have accomplished so much. Doc, thanks again for your time, and I really look forward to your next book. This made me revisit a lot of the early memories I have with Doc, and I never realized how much of a lasting impact he's had on my game and in my life. I'll put a link to his website and another where you can find most of his books in the notes for this podcast. I really recommend you check them out. There's a reason he's a big deal. On our next and second to last episode of this season, we hear from someone equally as renowned. While Doc helps us navigate the mental difficulties of golf, you can think of the next guest, Tom Fazio, as the man who challenges golfers physically. Tom has had more golf courses ranked in the top 100 than any architect in history. Here are a few courses he's designed or renovated. Pine Valley, Augusta National, Waterville Links, Shadow Creek, Baker's Bay, Jupiter Hills, The Elotion Club, Hudson National, Quail Hollow, Fox Chapel, Wade Hampton, Lake Nona. You get the idea. His firm, Fazio Design, also built the Olympic course in Japan for the 2021 Summer Games. Tom is a Philadelphia native, and you'll hear about his journey into architecture, why Ben Hogan's famous one iron in the 1950 U.S. Open at Marion arguably changed his life, 
and why having a talented team behind him is a big reason for his success. I'll see you on October 3rd.